Isn't that on? Hold on. I'm a professional. I've done this for 20 years. Sometimes I still forget the microphone. Hello, everybody. How you doing? Whether you're here in the room, joining us online from your boat, your cottage, the mountains, wherever you are, it is awesome to have you along for the ride. Uh, now, as many of you know, but a few of you don't know, we are in the eighth week of a series that we've called The Storyteller, in which we're exploring 10 of the most famous stories ever told. And as we've said, these stories are famous not just because of their content, which is absolutely brilliant, but because it was Jesus who first told them. In fact, when you read those accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, those four books that make up uh, the first four books in the New Testament, you start to see that Jesus often used stories to teach his audience how to think about God and what it means to live in a relationship with God right here and right now in the midst of this life. And that's why the content in these stories is so incredibly helpful. Uh, now, it's worth noting that many of Jesus' stories, and Bible nerds like me call them parables, uh, you know, they begin with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is like. In other words, Jesus says to his audience, listen, uh, the story I'm about to share with you is like a window through which you can glimpse how things should be if they were the way God intended them to be. If we were living in a space where God's kingdom had come and his will was being done on earth as it is in heaven. So, all right, now that said, with our time today, we get to unpack a parable that honestly makes me really uncomfortable and really hopeful. And you'll see what I mean in just a few minutes. But before we go there and to set the stage for what we get to talk about today, I want to tell you about a conversation that I had a few years back over some epic fish tacos. Who loves fish tacos? I know you're already getting the sense I'm addicted to tacos. It's true. My wife was out of town for like three nights in a row this week. And what did we have when she was gone every single night? Tacos, tacos, and tacos. That's how we did, you know. We had chicken, we had beef, and we had fish. So there you go. Anyway, uh, the particular tacos in question uh, came from the late restaurant, The Twisted Rooster. Who's been there remembers The Twisted Rooster? Moment of silence for The Twisted Rooster. I know. They were really good. Anyway, uh, the com here's how the whole thing went down. After one of our Sunday services a few years back, uh, a first-time visitor came up to me and actually asked me to go to lunch with him. And that's unusual for a first-time visitor, but this guy offered to buy lunch, and as I have a bit of Dutch blood flowing through my veins, and I asked him if he'd ever been to the Twisted Rooster, and he said no, I decided that after clearing it with my wife, of course, that we would have lunch together. And so I drove over to the Twisted Rooster, honestly not knowing what to expect, uh, and sat down across the table from a guy that I didn't know. And he explained to me that he lived on the east coast of the United States and that while he was in Grand Rapids for business, a friend actually suggested that he check out Keystone. And I said, apparently one person in New York loves me. <laughs> Yay! Anyway, uh, then he started to talk about his past experience with church. Uh, and he confessed that he had grown up in church, but really other than that morning, like the morning where we were having lunch, uh, he hadn't really attended a service for decades not even Christmas or Easter. He was like a hardcore non-church goer, right? And he went on to say that he found Keystone fascinating because it really was nothing like the church that he left. Apparently, they didn't serve popcorn. That's what I was thinking. Anyway, uh, when I asked why he had bailed from church, he was quick to explain. He, he said, you know, growing up, I, I had slowly lost trust in religion and then after taking a step away from organized religion, I slowly lost my faith 
and God. And when I said, you know, what happened? What sort of led to the initial erosion? He talked about religious people. He said that like in his experience, the religious people in his life didn't really seem to be particularly nice humans. They were constantly talking about all the things that they were against and the people groups they were against. And he said they were just some of the most judgmental people that he'd ever met. They, they judged each other. So it was equal opportunity judgment zone. He said, you know, they judged each other, but then they also judged people outside of the church and, and outside of their faith community and outside of their religion. And he said, you know, it just didn't make much sense to me. The kindest, most loving people that I knew weren't the Christians. He said, so I, I'd left church and I hadn't really looked back until a friend invited me to come and check out Keystone and he says well what I experienced did not completely reignite my faith he says no offense I said it's okay it's a one talk I mean what are you gonna do right he said it it did leave me intrigued enough uh, to have lunch with you and so I tell you that story because I suspect that this guy isn't the first human in history to feel this way and a few of you are like, dude, that's my story. And it was the popcorn that got me back. So there you go, right? Um, and I, but I think I know why this happens. Uh, we religious people, and I put myself in this category, we religious people seem to have a nasty tendency at times to get lost in a fog of church culture and tradition. And when that happens, it can be easy for us to lose our way without intending to. Uh, in fact, there's even times in history where we can end up working against the very sorts of things that God intends the church to fight for. And that was actually the reality in the time of Jesus. Uh, many of the conversations that Jesus had when he was alive on earth were with Jewish religious leaders. Jewish, the Jewish tradition was the tradition in which Jesus came to the Jewish religious leaders who had simply lost their way. And some of his harshest criticism was often leveraged at individuals who publicly, and I, I believe often unknowingly, carried God's reputation in ways counter to God's intentions. In fact, the parable that we get to unpack today flows out of one of those conversations. It was recorded for us almost 2,000 years ago by an early Jesus follower named Luke. And let me just show you how Luke sets up the context for the parable. He says this. He says, on one occasion, an expert in the law, think professional religious guy, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And now we would read that and say, what must I do to go to heaven? And that wasn't exactly what the guy was asking. Let me kind of explain. Uh, what the question that this guy asks actually was a very typical question that for religious leaders to ask one another in the first century. It's a question that sort of got to the heart of what it meant to live a life that honored God, which was sort of the goal of every Jewish person. Uh, in fact, the expert in the law could also have phrased his question this way. How do you believe that God desires me to live? What does God want? me to do in this life. And uh, as was often the case when someone asked Jesus a question, uh, Jesus responded with a question. Here's what he said. He said, well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? It's like, you're a professional religious guy. Tell me what you think the Old Testament law teaches that you must do in order to inherit eternal life, to step into the sort of life that God intends for you in the here and now. And the expert answered. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your strength, and all your might. 
Now, it's super easy for us to miss 2,000 years later, halfway around the world, but, but this expert responds by quoting a section of what the Jewish people call the Shema. And if you have any Jewish friends, you know that the Shema is very central to the life of a Jewish family. It's often the first thing that they pray when they get up in the morning, the last thing they pray before they go to bed at night. They recite these famous words found in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4. And everyone in Jesus' day agreed that the Shema was the most important of the 613 commandments in the Jewish law. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Like everything in you needs to love God. Uh, in fact, Jewish families, that's the first thing they would try to teach their babies. Uh, you know, people that were nearing the end of this life, that would often be the last thing they would try to recite as they exited this life. It was absolutely central to the life of every Jewish individual. But if we're honest, and if we think about it, the expert's answer to Jesus' question raises another question. I mean, how do you know if someone loves God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strength? How do you measure someone's love of God? And, and as the expert in the law continues, he actually provides his answer to that question. He had like a two-part answer. So he says, you know, what do you, Jesus says, what do you think? Well, the first part is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second part goes like this. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, uh, the expert believes that the best way to demonstrate and authenticate your love of God is your love of neighbor. When someone loves their neighbor, again, they're expressing their love for God. And, and Jesus quickly affirms this guy's understanding. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Do this and you will access the sort of eternal life, that life with God that, that you're after. You do it right here and right now. That's what you need to do. And it's worth noting um, that elsewhere in the accounts of Jesus' life, um, the authors of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record that Jesus taught his followers that if they committed to loving God with everything they have by loving people, then they didn't really need to worry about any of the other commandments. Everything else would just sort of take care of itself. So, so maybe this expert in the law had heard Jesus teach some of this before, and he was sort of reflecting the answer that Jesus wanted to hear back at Jesus but honestly, this answer still raises a question, which I think is why the expert asked him in the first place. Uh, the expert actually verbalizes the question behind the question behind the question. Here's what he says. And who is my neighbor? Now that's a really critical question, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's really easy to understand conceptually that someone's love of God is demonstrated and authenticated by their love of their neighbor, but, but like who exactly qualifies as a neighbor? Well, the word neighbor in Hebrew literally translates one who is close. And so historically, Jewish people interpreted this to mean that they were to love other Jewish people as they love themselves. And if you're not a Jewish people, then they were under no obligation to love you. Uh, but there were some other options that were floating around in the first century era as well. The Pharisees, those were the professional religious leaders, maybe this expert in the law was a Pharisee, they actually taught uh, that the love, uh, you were to love other Jews who were righteous, meaning right with God in the way they lived, and ceremonially clean, like you loved yourself. Like, go for the A-list religious people. You're going to love the other passionate religious people. And there was another group um, that taught that they basically said, well, we're, our neighbor is anyone who we like. 
So really what God is telling us to do is that we need to love our neighbor that we like already. So that doesn't seem like a particularly difficult thing to do, right? So love the people you like, love like you love yourself. So again, those are the answers that were sort of floating around in the air, but none of those are the options selected by Jesus. Instead, in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus told a story. He unleashes a parable. And as I imagined it, his disciples would have laughed or groaned because every time someone asked Jesus a question, after responding with a question, he would tell a story. And they'd be like, here he goes again. That's what he always does. Anyway, here's what Jesus said. So who's my neighbor? Jesus says, hmm, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him, he goes on, of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. You're like, great story, Jesus. Now, the walk from Jerusalem down to Jericho literally takes all day. It's a 27-mile journey, and in 27 miles, you descend 3,300 feet. Uh, during the summer months, the temperatures on the road to Jericho can climb north of 110 degrees. It can literally feel like you're trying to breathe air out of a hairdryer. And I know this because my wife, Sarah Ann, and I walked a part of that road, not the whole thing, in the summer of 2019. And we did it on a day when you couldn't rent a camel to take you because it was too hot for the camels. But we walked it anyway, because our guide was insane. And I remember saying to my wife, hey, if we don't die, this is going to be a great story, right? Oh, my goodness. Anyway, um, so after Jesus explains uh, the man in the narrative fell in the hands of robbers and beaten and left half dead, he goes on and he says, a priest, as a Jewish priest, happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, this would not have been unusual in that priests often traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, scholars suggest that as many as half of the priests uh, in Israel during the time of Jesus had homes in Jericho. The climate was, not in the summer, but generally speaking, a little more mild than up in the mountains in Jerusalem. Uh, but Jesus' story does raise a really important question. Because why did the priest pass the man in need by. And, and honestly, we don't know. But what's clear is that somehow in between the first time the priest saw this guy and the time he passed him by, he had somehow convinced himself not to stop. And I'm sure he had some like internal dialogue, like he sees the guy and he like sees that he's in need. And he's, you know, he said, well, what was he thinking? Maybe he thought he was already dead. That's possible. Or, or maybe he was in a hurry. Uh, he had to get to something important. It's also possible that, strange as it may seem, he was trying to honor God and his law in avoiding the man. And, and here's why. In the Old Testament book of Numbers, there are actually instructions for, among lots of other things, what to do around dead bodies. Uh, Jewish people were taught that if they went too near a dead body, they would become ceremonially unclean for seven days. So like if they're in a tent and somebody dies, they're ceremonially unclean for seven days. Uh, and, and here's the thing. If someone is unclean, then they're unfit to work in the temple in Jerusalem. So the priest, if he became unclean, couldn't do his job for a week. So somehow this priest convinced himself that God didn't want him to help this man in need. And so Jesus continues. And as he does, another character enters the story. 
Here's what he says. He says, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, a Levite would have been a couple steps below the priest on like the social ladder, but he still would have been involved in the work in the temple. So he too decided to move away from the man and pass him by on the other side. Now, it's worth noting that once again in this parable, and we've seen this over and over and over again, Jesus exaggerates some details in order to make his point. Because in order to pass by the guy in need on the other side, the Levite and the priest would have had to climb down through a huge valley in order to reach the path that was on the other side of the treacherous ravine along which the Jericho Road runs. Check out this picture again. And I, did, I forgot to mention um, that we brought, this is my, uh, my second son Parker's favorite stuffed hippo uh, named Pulo, who was along for the ride. And we have pictures of Pulo all over Israel, but that's way too much information. Notice in this picture, the ravine and the other side and the road on the other side, and it's basically like a sheer cliff. So it's a ridiculous suggestion that somebody would like walk to the other side. I mean, the path itself is maybe 18 inches wide. There's no other side to the one path. So you'd literally have to cross to the other side. Nobody would do it. But it's again, it's just a story and Jesus is trying to make a point. Well, anyway, as the narrative continues, uh, it takes a shocking turn. Because everyone listening to Jesus when he told the story would have expected that the third character in the story was going to be a Jew. Like a priest, a Levite, and a Jew were often common characters. It's kind of like two guys walk into a bar, that kind of a thing. There was always the priest, the Levite, and the Jew. And so I'm like, yeah. But see, that wasn't what Jesus had in mind. By the way, uh, when it was the priest, the Levite, and the Jew, the Jew was always the hero in the story. So that's kind of fun too. But anyway, they were ready for that. And that's not what happened. Here's what Jesus Says. He says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He goes on, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and, and then he put the man on his own donkey and, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, the key to understanding this parable and what Jesus is trying to get after here is a little bit of history. Because in Jesus' day, you need to know that Jewish people absolutely hated Samaritans. And they had hated them for generations. And, and, and here's why. 500 years before the time of Jesus, a group of Jewish people had been deported along with people from other races by a pagan king. And over time, they chose to intermarry with pagans. And so these Jews who had married pagans became known as a new people group, the Samaritans, and they eventually returned to the land. So to first century Jews, Samaritans were half-breeds, or for the Harry Potter fans among us, half-bloods. Thank you. I've been waiting all week for that one. Okay, yeah. And I thought it'd be more funny than that, but it wasn't. That's cool. All right, yeah. So they basically, the Jewish people saw the Samaritans. They say, hey, your bloodline is polluted. You're no longer worthy to be the children of God. And to make matters worse, the Samaritan religion was sort of a, a mixture of Judaism and a whole bunch of idolatrous practices from other faiths. And so the Samaritans had come to a spot where they actually believed that they had replaced the Jewish people as the people of God. So like, we're the people now, you're no longer the people of God. And they even believed that the temple of God in Jerusalem was no longer valid and they had built a separate temple in Samaria. So like I said, in Jesus' day, the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. If you asked a Jewish person, they would tell you that the only people on earth that were not allowed to convert to Judaism were the Samaritans. 
Uh, one more for fun. Uh, there's this Jewish historian named Josephus, very spunky, very fun to read. And he describes the, how the Samaritans were lost access to the temple in Jerusalem. Here's what Josephus tells us. He says, it was customary for the Jewish priests to open the temple gates just after midnight on Passover. That's the main Jewish feast of the year, the most popular fe festival. He says, when therefore those gates were first opened, some of the Samaritans, wait, do you see this? This is so awesome. Came privately into Jerusalem and threw about dead man's bodies. Oh, spunky, right? On which account the Jews afterwards excluded them out of the temple. So they basically made like the whole city ceremonially unclean. And they're like, you're done, dudes. No way. Like that's some hardcore hatred. So I show you that in order to say the Jews hated the Samaritans, the Samaritans hated the Jews. And yet Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero in the parable. He teaches his followers that when you see someone Anyone who's wounded and dying, anyone who's in need, the appropriate response is mercy. And, and Jesus notes that the Samaritan did the right thing. He did what needed to be done in order to help the wounded man. And then he continues. He goes, oh, but that's not all. Check out what this guy did. Again, here we go, exaggeration. The next day he took out two denarii, it's like two days work, and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Like the Samaritan dude has like a halo around his head, right? Like over the top. And if you count, and I did, there were 12 different action verbs in this parable used to describe what the Samaritan did to help the wounded man. He didn't stop. He not only did he stop, he served. And so Jesus' disciples and the religious leaders who are listening to this parable would have cringed because the Samaritan isn't supposed to be the good guy, like ever. But, but according to Jesus, he was. Well, after telling the story, uh, Jesus uh, asks the expert in the law who had brought up the question, who is my neighbor? He asks him a question. Here's what he says. Which of these three, priest, Levite, Samaritan, do you think was a neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who I am to love in order to demonstrate my love for God? To the man who fell into the hands of robbers. Which of these men loved their neighbor as they love themselves and thus demonstrated their love for God? And, and the implications to this parable really are staggering if you stop to think about it. It's like Jesus looks at religious leaders and says, you're trying to define neighbor in a way that makes you comfortable because you really only want to love people that are like you and people that you like, people that see the world like you see the world, people who believe the same things you believe. But that's not what God intends for his people, especially the religious leaders who publicly carry his reputation to the world. That's not what he expects, not by a long shot. And so confronted with a question that he really does not want to answer, the expert in the law looks back at Jesus and says that the neighbor to the wounded man was, check this out, <clears throat> the one who had mercy on him. And that's funny because, let me tell you why, he doesn't even say the word Samaritan. He doesn't even want to put the word on his lips. He hates them so much, even though he was the one who did the right thing, that did what should be done. Even though he was the one that didn't sit around and try to figure out how to disqualify someone from the status of neighbor. In other words, the Samaritan did the right thing and Jesus looks back at the expert in the law and says, go and do 
likewise. In other words, and this would have stung, be like the Samaritan. And then Jesus drops the shofar, right? Just walks off, yeah. Now, what does that have to do with you and me 2,000 years later, halfway around the world, especially if you're here this morning and, and you're a follower of Jesus? Um, I think it has a lot to do, and this is the part that makes me uncomfortable and hopeful, just to be totally honest with you, right? Because if we're honest, the implications to this teaching really couldn't have been any more clear. Jesus teaches his followers, like us, not, maybe not all of us, if you're here and you're seeking, welcome, but teaches us that everyone, even our worst enemy, is our neighbor and deserves to be loved like we love ourselves. See what I mean by uncomfortable? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you think about it, even, even just for fundamentalists, even the person whose yard signs, have you noticed the yard signs lately around the world? Yeah, in, around the world, <laughs> like we've been anywhere other than here for the last year and a half, but anyway, yeah, yeah. Even the persons whose yard signs and bumper stickers make us furious is our neighbor. Even the person whose political affiliations make us nauseous are our neighbors. Even, wait for it, the progressives. Hold on, progressives. Even the conservatives. See what I did there? Yeah, very, yeah, yeah. yeah. Even the people who don't believe like we believe. Even the people who believe the opposite of what we believe. Even the people whose Facebook posts make us question their salvation. Do you have these people? And here's how you know. Have you ever said to someone in your life, I think I need to unfriend them just because they make my blood boil? Maybe it's just me. Anyway, yeah. Literally, there are no exceptions. God wants us to love every neighbor and everyone is our neighbor. This idea like, you know, the neighbor in the Hebrew is one who is close. It's almost like from Jesus' perspective, listen, you're all humans. You're all close and you're all, you know, needing a lot of work. So here we go. Yeah. So, so to summarize, if you want to demonstrate your love of God in this world, you must love people, all people. And we must be willing to serve people, all people. And, and I know what a few of you are thinking, right? Because I had this, as I, was, as I was writing this week, I was like, oh wait, this is a great question. Then, okay, so if I'm supposed to love people, what is love? What, what exactly is love? And fortunately, an early pastor named Paul defined it for us 2,000 years ago in a letter to Christians living in Greece. And if you've ever been married um, and had a a wedding ceremony with somebody like me that stands up in a suit, and you you probably had this verse read at weddings. It's like the number one hit on the wedding charts, right? Uh, Here's what Paul tells us about love. He says, love is patient. It's like, you want me to be patient with people that I don't agree with, that I don't like? Yep. Love, it, love is kind. I have to be kind to that neighbor with the bumper sticker? Yep. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. So like love is humble. It's like you go, you know what? Maybe they, maybe they believe what they believe because of what they've experienced in life. And maybe if I could place myself in their shoes, I might actually not only understand it, I might feel the way that they feel. So it's not proud. It does not dishonor others. Okay, so if, if we do have a discussion about an area of disagreement, we need to do it in a way that, that honors them. 
somehow, even though I don't agree with them, even though we're going to walk away and neither one of us are, are going to have moved at all on what we believe, we still, when we have conversations, we need to not dishonor others because that's what love requires of us. Yep, it's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Man, if I'm around them and they start spewing, I mean saying <laughs> what, they, <laughs> what they say, I always feel this primal something deep within my soul and I just you know, want to rip their face off as unto the Lord. And that's, <laughs> Paul, what are you telling me here? And he's like, you need to love them, right? You need to keep the anger at bay. He said, it keeps no record of wrongs. Oh boy, right? Um, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes. It always perseveres. And I love that last part. Love never fails because we navigate a world where there's different opinions about things and people are passionate about their opinions and that's fine and we're passionate about our opinions and that's fine too and I don't think Jesus is like you don't have to come to consensus on this stuff that's not the point but you do need to love one another like you love yourself you need to love your neighbor like you love yourself and everyone is your neighbor so like baseline what does it mean to be the people of God in the world it's like we have to assume this posture of of love And that's actually how we change the world. So I started with the story with the epic tacos, Twisted Rooster, may it rest in peace, right? And as I was reflecting, not only on that conversation, but also on what Jesus taught here, I, I couldn't help myself from thinking like, what would happen if more Christians, more followers of Jesus took his teaching seriously and really sought to love and serve the people that we don't necessarily like. And, and here's the thing. I suspect that our world would be a very different place and a very better place. And I also suspect, this is really selfish and practical, there would be a lot less empty seats in church buildings all over our world. Because a movement, think about this, a movement founded on grace that we don't deserve from God and founded on a charge to love our neighbor like we love ourselves should be practically irresistible. And I'm convinced that is exactly what Jesus had in mind. And so, my friends, this week may be a renewed focus for all of us to engage every relationship, every conversation with every neighbor that we run into from a posture of humility and love. All right, if you're here in the room, uh, please stand and uh, I'll close our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, it's amazing Thank you for preserving the words of your son and thank you for the power that they have after all of these generations to speak right to the heart of the human condition. And we confess that for many of us as, as religious people in our world, um, we are tempted to fall into some of those same traps that the religious leaders in Jesus' day fell into and we desire to do better. We desire to be a people that better reflect your son in our world. We desire to be an organization that better reflects what your son had in mind for our community. And we know we aren't going to get it perfect, but we just desire to do it 
as well as we possibly can. And so thank you for the grace in which we stand. Thank you for loving us even when we are unlovable. And thank you for inviting us to treat others the same way that you have treated us. Thank you for a safe place to ask hard questions and a place where we get uh, to walk after Jesus together. And so uh, for today, we just say thank you. Thank you uh, for loving us. Thank you for grace. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, It is in his name that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you back here next week.